Lamentations chapter 5, we'll be reading in a few moments. This will be our last message on Lamentations as we consider the final chapter. I've actually preached bits and pieces of Lamentations before, but I think I've never felt that it was more timely for us to read through the entire book together and consider what it has to say, not only in relation to national Israel, the Jewish nation, but also in relation to our own nation. The trajectory we now seem to be on seems to be accelerating. I think we all feel it. But remember, nothing in Scripture, even the most graphically terrifying and sobering passages, none of that is given to cause believers grief and agony and pain. What does the Bible say about itself? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. Why is that? That we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have what? Fear and dread? No. That we might have hope, right? If we truly mean it when we say, as in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, if we really mean that, We read scripture with an eye not only to find Christ there, and we do, even in books like Lamentations, we find him everywhere, but we also read it with a desire to follow the good that we find here in the scripture and to shun the evil that we find there. Isn't that what the Bible tells us about Job? He followed the right and he shunned evil. Just so happens that Lamentations, for five straight chapters lays out for us the consequences of evil. And they're not pretty, whether it's on the personal level or speaking of the sin of an entire nation. Oh, that the children of men would take heed, but sadly, because of our depravity, the heart of man is like hardened flint. The mind of man is a closed system, not open to truth. Just think of all the names that people call each other, the insults that people call each other to describe people who don't listen. We call them hard-hearted or hard-headed or numbskull, things just don't pass in, or dense, talking about people whose brains, whose heads seem hard so that nothing gets through. So the things that Judah suffered because her mind and her heart were impervious, closed to divine instruction, were really common to mankind. They are common to mankind in his natural condition. What happened to Judah had happened to other nations and societies before it happened to Judah, and it has happened since, and it will happen again. So where are we in relation to these things as a nation and as a people? People say you need to know what part of the movie you're in as the saying goes. Well, only God knows when it all ends, but certainly it's never too late to pray for God's forgiveness and restoration. And I think that's how the prophet Jeremiah ends his lamentation in this final chapter, which is the shortest of all the chapters. So 
Please follow along now as I read Lamentations chapter 5, so let's read it all together. Lamentations 5, beginning in verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has, become upon, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our houses to foreigners. We have become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. We pay for the water we drink and our wood comes at a price. They pursue at our heels. We labor and have no rest. We have given our land, our hand to the Egyptians and the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Servants rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven. Because of the fever of famine, they ravished the women in Zion, the maidens in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung up by their hands, and elders were not respected. Young men ground at the millstones. Boys staggered under loads of wood. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate, and the young men from their music. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. Because of Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. You, O Lord, remain forever. Your throne from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. Here is the summary of the message that we'll be considering this morning in this chapter. A prophet reminding the Lord of their misery and reproach pours out a prayer to the Lord for remembrance and restoration. Let's look to the Lord once again as we consider this chapter. Heavenly Father, once again, we come to you, and uh, as always, we depend on you to open to us, to our minds and to our hearts, the scriptures and the meaning of them, and to touch our hearts as to how to respond in our thoughts and in our actions. So we look to you once again, dear Lord, as we consider a difficult passage, another difficult chapter, the grief that is uh, being expressed here. Uh, the human misery uh, that touches our hearts even now, several thousand years later after it was written. I pray, Father, uh, that you would give us a tender heart as we consider humanity that is suffering all around us. And uh, in many cases, it's really for the same reason, because mankind has sinned and fallen away. Uh, They don't look to you. They don't trust in you. And so uh, man is left to wallow in sin on his own. Lord, we pray uh, that we, as those who know you, uh, who have come to Christ and you have come to us, I pray, Father, that we might be uh, the means by which the world around us, what little influence we might have, uh, would come to know you. So we ask that you would bless us now as we consider these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen message this morning is in two simple points. The first one is a portrait of reproach. 
what the prophet is saying is, Lord, remember us. Of course, that doesn't mean that he thinks the Lord doesn't, isn't aware of what's happening and what has happened. The whole chapter is really a prayer. But notice how he says in verse 1, Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. It really is said in a, a prayerful way. But then he's going to lay out the things that have come upon Judah as a result of the nation's sin. Now, as a man, Jeremiah wears his heart on his shirt sleeves. It's hard to read his writings, especially Lamentations, and not feel as if we, we almost know him personally. Commentator B.H. Carroll has the following uh, rather interesting description of the prophet Jeremiah. Let me read it. He says, No man had greater tenderness of heart than Jeremiah. No man could sympathize more with his people. No man could be more overpowered with sorrow over their sins and their destruction. He even prayed that his eyes might be a fountain of tears, pouring forth their grief and sorrow, and if possible, wash away the sins of the people. Some of the greatest depths to be found in all human experiences are to be found in Jeremiah. He was the most human and most outspoken of all the prophets. He was not afraid to lay bare his heart. He allows us to see down into its very depths. He laments, he complains, he even complains to Jehovah and writes his complaints in the inspired word. He calls for vengeance upon his foes. He feels like accusing God for having called him into prophetic work. When in the depths of despondence, he curses the day he was born and actually censures his mother for having brought him forth. He even considers the question of quitting the ministry altogether. He was like a weaned child that has its struggle and cries, but by and by, it rests upon its mother's bosom. So in the latter part of Jeremiah's life, he is at rest calm and patient. He has had his fight and is quiet. There's a lot of truth in that description. Clearly, Jeremiah saw himself as an intercessor, much like what we see in the life of Moses. Moses was given the job of leading the people out of Egypt and through the wilderness, but he often found himself having to intercede on their behalf lest God destroy them for their sins and their hardness of heart. Of course, Jesus also would be an intercessor for the people, sorrowing over their sins, grieving over their lack of understanding, mourning their lost condition. We have this little verse in Matthew chapter 9, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And seeing that, he ministered to them. And even after multitudes of them walked out on him, ultimately they hung him on the cross, many of them mocking him in the process. Even then he prayed, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You ever feel that way towards those that the Lord has put around you? I certainly have prayed that prayer, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But we often mistakenly think that those that we're praying for, that if they were to suffer hardship for their sins, like Judah was in this chapter, 
that they would see God's heavy hand upon them and they would repent and turn to the Lord. But as we know, that's often not the case. Probably more often than not, that is not the case. Certainly wasn't the case in Jeremiah's day, even when they had lost everything. And especially here in the first 18 verses, Jeremiah lays out just what they had lost. Notice, beginning in verse 2, they had lost their inheritance. Their nation had been given to others. Verse 2 says, our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our houses to foreigners. Well, the inheritance is obviously their land and all that it contained that had been given to them through the promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had given it to them, remember, as a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands, it was called. But here they've lost possession of it. Those who now possessed it were both aliens and foreigners. I think the King James here says strangers and aliens. The idea that is that it was taken over by foreigners, those who came in from the outside, whose ways were strange to the Jews, and the Jews' ways were strange to them. And not only that, but it had been taken over by their enemies, those who they were alienated or estranged from, not just by choice, but by God's arrangement. But now those enemies have come in upon them. And notice that verse 2 said it says it's been turned over to aliens. The word actually carries the idea of a transfer. It's been transferred to others as if God had done a real estate transaction without consulting them. Sort of like finding out that you've been the, the victim of title theft. Your house, you've taken years to pay it off. And you find out that the title was stolen, say, by online criminals. Only in this case, it was a repossession. It was God who held the title. Because they failed to keep their end of the agreement, God was now repossessing it. He was doing with it as he pleased. Take a look at Luke chapter 20, because it reminds me of the parable of the wicked tenants in Luke chapter 20. And uh, just to give you a little background, this parable was given to the scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders shortly after Jesus had cleansed the temple for the second time. And as you may guess, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders weren't happy about that. And they came to him and they challenged him and they said, who gives you the authority to do these things? Of course, there was a little back and forth there for a moment, but then Jesus gives them this parable, and it begins in verse 9. It says, He began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers, so they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again he, sent, again he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. 
But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then Jesus pauses and asks a question of the religious leaders listening to this parable. He says, Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And then he says, he will come and destroy those vine dressers. And then he says, he will give the vineyard to others. A real estate transfer. And notice how they responded. When they heard what he said, they said, certainly not. But whose vineyard was it? It was God's vineyard. God can do with his vineyard as he pleases. Now, Matthew's account of this parable says that God will lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. I think that's a prophecy of the new covenant, the gospel being offered to the Gentiles, the New Testament church and all of that. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. In the case of the fall of Judah in Lamentations, it was a temporary repossession. The Lord was taking back his land and he was giving it to Judah's enemies, the Babylonians. And then he would use the Babylonians as instruments of judgment on the Jews. Now afterwards, God would carry out judgment on Babylon too. In fact, he would make an example of their king, Nebuchadnezzar, as you remember from the book of Daniel. But at this point, going back to Lamentations chapter 5, Judah has been cast out. And notice again in verse 3, we've become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. They've been deprived of their natural protectors. Imagine that situation, children deprived of their parents, the people deprived of their leaders. The defenders of their city and country had either fallen in battle or they had been led away into captivity. Their life, which had been relatively good, By the way, God had extended his long-suffering for a long time. But now it had become a struggle for survival. Notice verse 4, we pay for the water we drink. Our wood comes at a price. They pursue at our heels. We labor and have no rest. We have given our our hand to the Egyptians and the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. We've swallowed our pride as Jews. We grovel at the hands of even our long-time enemies, just to survive. And then we come to verse 7. Verse 7 is an interesting one. There seems to be uh, almost a a blame shifting going on in verse 7. Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Now what's that all about? Was Jeremiah passing the blame to a previous generation? Well, it could be that Jeremiah was just repeating the complaint. It was almost, it was actually a proverb. The Jews often directed it at God. They would go around saying, our fathers ate sour grapes and our teeth are set on edge. You remember we read about that? I think it's in the book of Jeremiah. Uh, We also read that proverb in the book of uh, Ezekiel. What they're saying is our forefathers are the ones that sinned and we're the ones getting the blame for it course that wouldn't have been Jeremiah's position at all some scholars think that based on verse 7 
chapter 5 was written later, a generation later, and appended onto the other chapters, as if the writer is speaking for the next generation, which wasn't directly to blame for the fall of Judah. I don't think that's necessarily the case either. I think it's more likely that this is just a confession. Every man, woman, and child is responsible for his or her own sin and will not be judged for the sins of another. That's all laid out in Ezekiel chapter 18, by the way. It talks about only the sin will only be attributed to the person who, who committed it. But sin certainly has consequences that pass from one generation to the other. Judah's fall was really the result of many generations of sinful neglect of God's commandments. Certainly that is true, but that doesn't mean that the present generation was less guilty than the previous generations. One resource that I consulted says this, and I I thought it was good. It says the consequences of sin are cumulative. The passing of time gives more opportunity for hearing and obeying the word of God. Therefore, The generation of Jeremiah was even more guilty than previous generations because they had neglected more opportunities, more warnings, and ignored more judgments than their fathers. Leviticus or Lamentations 5.7 then is not an excuse for the people, but an explanation of the severity of their suffering. I would tend to, I'd be inclined to take that uh, interpretation. There is, by the way, a genuine confession and acceptance of blame in verse 16. If you'll jump down there, it says, The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. We have sinned. They, these people who once reigned as the special people of God, of Abraham. It was written in Psalm 45, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the Jewish people were the guardians of the oracles of God. They were privileged people. They were put in high positions. They were his viceroys in a sense. But now, as Jeremiah says, the crown has fallen from their heads. They who were given the privilege of being the guardians of truth and righteousness in the world by God himself, Jewish nation has now fallen fall into the place of total humiliation. And that's uh, what he goes into in some detail beginning in verse 8. Verse 8, he complains that they are being ruled by servants. There's nothing more humiliating than that. Verse 8, servants rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. The Jewish people who were the princes of the Most High are now being ruled by servants of the Babylonians. That situation was considered an inversion of the natural order. Take a look back at the book of Proverbs, if you would. Proverbs uh, actually says a number of things about servants put in positions of leadership, unqualified to rule. Proverbs 17 and verse 2. And this one is really an indictment of the, uh, the Jews as sons of God who had sinned, Proverbs 17.2 says, a wise servant will rule over a son who causes shame. Isn't that exactly what was happening? The Jews were the sons who had caused shame, and so now, therefore, they are under the rule of servants. 
and will share an inheritance among the brothers. That had just happened. Take a look a couple chapters later in chapter 19, Proverbs 19, and verse 10. Luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a servant to rule over princes. And then jump over to chapter 30. In verse 21, it says, For three things the earth is perturbed. Yes, for four it cannot bear up. And then he names the first of those in verse 22, a servant when he reigns. So the children of Judah, by their sin, had overturned the natural social order, and they now found themselves no longer princes, but at the very bottom. So humiliating it was that even their necessities, like food, were out of reach. Verse 9 says, they procure it at the risk of their lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Even if they find food, There are thieves and aggressors out there, whether they're Gentile enemies or other Jews perhaps, are out there to take it away from them. Verse 10 tells us that starvation is staring them in the face. They feel the misery of it, the fever of it, the famine, the fever of famine in their bodies. In verse 11, the women have no one to protect them. Their enemies take their advantage. In verses 12 and 13, the men from princes to children bear the laborious burden of subjugation to a calloused enemy. Princes and elders are disrespected. Young men and even children are laboring like slaves. That's what's going on. And then they start, uh, and then as Jeremiah continues on, he goes into these painful memories of things when times were better beginning in verse 14. He speaks of the vitality and joys of life as they once lived it. It still remained in their memory, but now it was withheld from them. Sin, when it's continued unrepented of, has terrible consequences. Notice verse 14, the elders who once gathered at the the gate to discuss the issues of the day gathered no more. In verses 14 and 15, their memories of music and dance in happier times, those were gone as well. In verse 18, even the hustle and bustle of the temple, its ceremonies, its feasts, its religious activities, they were all gone as well. Because of Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. It's an interesting little detail, isn't it? Kind of made me think of that verse in Isaiah where... It made me think that maybe the foxes knew their master better than the Jews did. Isn't that what Isaiah says about the ox? The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. The animals know me better than you do. The Jews who called Jehovah their God. So even their temple lay in ruins. We were told this, by the way, back in chapter 4, in the previous chapter. You can take a look back one chapter, if if you want, uh, to the first verse, where it says the stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. Verse 12, 
the kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem, let alone destroy God's temple. That's what their presumption had brought upon them. They presume that the Lord loves religion. He'll never destroy his own temple. I think as was often the case, they misunderstood the physical representation of truth, which the temple was, for the spiritual reality of it. I think the Puritan authors of our confession had a much more humble and sober view of the church on earth. Let me just read you one of the paragraphs from the chapter on the church. They say the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, Christ always hath had and ever shall have a kingdom in this world to the end thereof of such as believe in him and make profession of his name. A church can become a synagogue of Satan if only the Jews had understood that their temple and all of their ceremonies had become a synagogue of Satan. They didn't understand that. They thought they were invincible. All of this, Jeremiah says in verse 17, he says, because of this, because of all of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. The great English poet of the 18th century, Alexander Pope, He gave us a line that's become famous. He said, hope springs eternal in the human breast. In normal times, even the general population is inspired by hope. People are always looking for better times ahead. But sometimes conditions are so dire that even the faintest hopes die. And I think that's what is going on here. That's what verse 17 says. Our heart is faint because of these things. Our eyes grow dim. The eyes grow dim, the heart is faint. But isn't that exactly where Israel needed to be? What did Paul say? Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. God's strength is made perfect in my weakness, right? Not in my strength. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. That's what Israel didn't know. That's what they didn't understand. If God's purpose was to place Israel under a law which he knew they couldn't keep, to prepare his people for a coming Redeemer uh, that would justify their hearts by faith, then he actually had them right where they needed to be. Take a look at Galatians chapter 3. And notice in, in verse 18, and he's talking about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Paul writing to the Galatian, the churches of Galatia. He says, For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed, capital S, should come to whom the promise was made. He's speaking there of Christ, of course, the promised seed of Abraham. Now jump down to verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. 
But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we, notice that word we, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Okay, now think about what Jeremiah was dealing with. He was dealing with a nation, a people, uh, that had broken God's laws over and over and over and over again. God was long-suffering. He kept sending prophets to them. They turned them away. They killed them. They rejected them. They disbelieved them. And finally... God let the enemy come in and destroy their city, their temple, and left them in ruins. What Paul is saying here is all of that was for a purpose. The law, the period of the law was for a purpose. It's interesting, in this passage to the Galatians, Paul is writing to churches in a primarily Gentile region of Galatia. Most likely he's writing to a largely Gentile audience. It's interesting that Paul would speak to them in the first person and say, we, we were kept under guard by the law uh, for the faith it would be revealed. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. Now what does he mean by grouping even Gentiles in with him as a Jew? The reason is, I believe, He's explaining to his audience that God's long-term plan to justify sinners uh, was not by the law. In order to justify sinners, God would draw out a people uh, from those who had been given the law but failed to keep it. God would draw out a people who would recognize their own inability and come to the Redeemer by faith. If we learn nothing else from the study of fallen national Israel, I hope we don't miss this. If we do understand this, then when Paul says we were kept under guard by the law, speaking of him, the Jews, Gentiles, all together, the law was our tutor to bring us to faith, including us too. Does that all make sense? Lamentations is simply a point in God's plan. Tragedy, hardship, difficulty, grief, agony, suffering, yes. But it was all done for a purpose. It all was allowed to happen for a purpose. The portrait of reproach that Jeremiah has given. It was sad, but it was necessary for Judah to endure so that the promises of God for the future could be accomplished. And that brings us to our second point, which I promise will be shorter than the first. And that is this. It's a prayer for renewal. Just the final four verses. As if the first 18 verses Jeremiah was saying, Remember us, Lord, look at our suffering. When we come to verse 19, the prophet is saying, Restore us. Restore us, O Lord. Remember, one of Jeremiah's duties as the Lord's prophet was to intercede for the people. And he begins where we always ought to begin, 
Notice in verse 19, he begins with a recognition of God's sovereign dominion. Notice verse 19. You, O Lord, remain forever. Your throne from generation to generation. Now, I wake up at night quite often. And quite often when I wake up at night, I start praying the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a, is a model prayer. It's sort of a framework to guide our thoughts. And it also begins with a recognition of God's sovereign dominion, doesn't it? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy, and your kingdom will come. Absolute surety of that fact. That's really an expression of God's dominion. Your kingdom will come and it will remain forever. And from that starting point, we can continue on to the mundane things of this earth. None of which, by the way, are outside of the watchful care of our Father in heaven. So he begins with this recognition of God's sovereign dominion. And then he goes into this, I guess we can call it a rebuke. For Jeremiah to rebuke God, kind of an odd thing for one of the greatest prophets in the Bible to be rebuking God. Notice verse 20, he says, Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Is Jeremiah actually rebuking God for leaving them so long in their forsaken state? Well, even if this was written at the beginning of the captivity, which was in 586 B.C., the people had wallowed in their sin and the nation had tottered on the verge of collapse at least since the death of Josiah, which was in 609 B.C., so that was a period of 33 years, a full generation. And, of course, we know that Judah was in trouble long before even Josiah came to the throne, So to answer my own question, of course Jeremiah wasn't seriously pointing the finger at God, as if to blame God for what Jeremiah knew was the sins of the people. I believe that this was just a sincere outpouring of grief from a prophet who was in the habit of communing with God from the heart as friend with friend. Don't you do that when you pray to God? I do. I say, Lord, I look at the world around us, I say, Lord, how do you allow this? How do you allow them to play with man's DNA and to create these strange uh, things with genetics and all of these awful things that they're doing? How do you allow men who are wicked beyond imagination to subjugate and murder mass numbers of people? I say things like that. Someone has said that part of the life of faith is to pray openly and honestly. We believe that when God reconciled us to himself, he reconciled us, he is now our brother and our friend. Our brother and our friend, we would speak with very openly and honestly. Someone has said, it's only with a friend that we can converse in perfect freedom. If we're always trying to uh, be eloquent when we preach, when we pray to the Lord, I think that's a wrong approach. It's, it's one thing to 
maybe use a little bit of eloquence when we're praying publicly. And even then, I'm not sure how, I'm not sure what God thinks of it. Prayer is talking to our Redeemer as friend with friend, as brother with brother, as child with father. And I think that's what Jeremiah is doing. And notice in verse 21, he's requesting renewal. Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old. Notice here as Jeremiah asks God to renew his people to their better days of old, of course he recognized the need of the people to repent and turn back to God. He had told them that he had told the people that they needed to repent. He told them over and over and over until he was blue in the face. But here, notice that he's emphasizing the need for God to work in the hearts of the people. You might say that a couple thousand years before John Calvin was born, Jeremiah was a good Calvinist. He has things in the right order. Turn us back to you, O Lord, before we are even capable ourselves of turning back to you. He's emphasizing the need for God to work in the hearts of the people. Remember how the people under Moses, more than once, they said, all that the Lord says we will do. Sure, sure. How many times did they say that? How many times did they do it? Never. We know the heart of man. We've all said to the Lord, too, what you, what you tell us to do, we will do. But what does God say to us? The Lord says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death or mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Our victory over the flesh is only by the Spirit. Jeremiah ends with, we might call this kind of another odd verse. Verse 22. Ask the question first, was Jeremiah confident about the future of God's people, Israel? As the book of Lamentations closes, Jeremiah writing while still under the administration of the Old Covenant, he almost doesn't sound so sure. Verse 20, he says, why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long? And then in verse 22, he says, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. It almost seems to be answering his own question. You've forsaken us for so long because you've utterly rejected us. Well, actually, verse 22 can be viewed either as a statement or as a question. As a statement, it speaks of total rejection, though you have utterly rejected us or it could be a question have you utterly rejected us either way if there was any hope remaining where did that hope lie well i don't think any of god's prophets understood with greater clarity where things now stood than jeremiah it was jeremiah who had predicted exactly what god was going to do to judah even down to the destruction of the temple. I'm going to ask you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. Back in Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah was instructed by God to deliver some very bad news. 
He was told to stand in the gate and proclaim these words beginning in verse 3 of chapter 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, are these. What what that means is that the Jews were, it was almost like a a ceremonial uh, thing that they would repeat. Someone has, uh, I think, gives a good interpretation. The Jews falsely thought that because their temple had been chosen by Jehovah as his peculiar dwelling, it could never be destroyed. That their ceremonial observances superseded their need for holiness. The triple repetition of the temple of Jehovah expresses the intense confidence of the Jews, the overconfidence of the Jews. Jeremiah continues in verse 5, For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, then jump down to verse 7, then, and he tells them the things they need to change, and then in verse 7 he says, Then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. But, and then jump down to verse 8, Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal? And walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? By the way, Jesus quoted that verse. Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. But go now to my place which was in Shiloh where I set my name at the first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. He's talking about how Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle was and God allowed the Philistines to take possession of the Ark of the Covenant. Jeremiah continues in verse 13. And now because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name in which you trust and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers as I have done to Shiloh and I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brethren. All of that prophecy had been fulfilled. All of that God had done. Hence we have the book of Lamentations. But in fact, wasn't it also Jeremiah who prophesied that the entire Old Covenant would fail? Wasn't it Jeremiah who also prophesied that because the Jews couldn't keep that covenant, that God would make a new covenant with his people in which God would accomplish what they were unable to accomplish? Oh yeah, that was Jeremiah, wasn't it? Jump ahead to chapter 31. This is why I say no one understood, I think, more clearly than Jeremiah what was going on with the failure of the Old Covenant uh, leading to the establishment of a new covenant. Notice Jeremiah chapter 31. And uh, begin reading in verse 27. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. And then jump to verse 28. It shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict. That's what Lamentations is about, right? 
So I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I will do this. They failed, they broke it, but I will do this. Two seemingly contradictory messages, one in chapter 7 predicting destruction and one in chapter 31 predicting a building back up. Think about how Jeremiah himself, in being sent to deliver these seemingly contradictory messages to the people, was really a type of Christ. Let me quote B.H. Carroll again, comparing Jeremiah, the person of Jeremiah, with Christ in his earthly ministry. B.H. Carroll says both Jeremiah and Jesus appeared at a similar crisis in the history of Israel, 40 years before the end of the nation and the temple. Number two, both were persecuted for predicting the fall of the ceremonial institutions and the ritual. Number three, both were at variance with the accepted orthodoxy of the time and were regarded as heretical and dangerous. Number four, both showed that true religion transcended the temple and its ritual and thus saved religion in the downfall of these institutions. Number five, both made the way open for a positive statement of new doctrine. You know, Jesus talked about the new wine in the old bottles, new cloth on old. Uh, Jeremiah also in 31, this new covenant. Number six, both suffered at the hands of the religious leaders of the time. And number seven, both lived lives of seeming failure and died at the hands of their countrymen. And number eight, both might have the words of Isaiah applied to them, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And to both may be applied Lamentations chapter 1 and verse 2, Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. That's what Jeremiah said, but that could also be applied to Jesus as well. Fall of Judah was a necessary, uh, even in God's, was necessary even in God's establishing of a new covenant that only the divine power of God could accomplish. Think about the day of Pentecost. If there was ever a time when the Jews were more guilty before God, perhaps even more guilty than they were in Jeremiah's day, it would have been on the day of Pentecost. If there was ever a time when the Jews were, whether they knew it or not, facing greater judgment, and unable to get themselves out of it than they were even aware of. It was after they had crucified their Messiah and then went about living life just as if nothing had happened. Before they killed him, Jesus wept over Jerusalem, saying how often I wanted to gather you together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. And then Jesus said, Behold, your house is left to you Desolate. That's what Jesus said before they crucified him. And so now we come, after the resurrection, we come to the day of Pentecost. 
Israel was a lost cause as a, a nation, really, at that point. Most of the people didn't even know it. But then, unrelated to anything the people could have done to appease the wrath of God, God did a great thing on that day. What happened on the day of Pentecost? A sound, a great sound from heaven, as of a mush, rushing mighty wind, which filled the whole house where their small band of disciples were sitting. The appearance of divided tongues as a fire, which sat upon each of them. The filling of the Holy Spirit, enabling them to speak with other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance as a sign to the Jews of the dispersion and to the Gentiles that the good news of the gospel would now go forth to the world. The power of the Holy Spirit unleashed on that day, 3,000 souls added to the church, signs and miracles announcing the coming of a new age of faith and the end of the law. All of that was God's work. The people themselves had no power whatsoever But that's what God's intention was. And the fall of Judah was a part of that series of events that led to the day of Pentecost and ultimately to where we are today. Now you say that's all in Lamentations? Yeah, it's right right there. You have to read between the lines. You have to understand Jeremiah, I think, and read the promises of God between the lines. Did the Lord answer Jeremiah's prayers for restoration and renewal? That's a good question. Maybe not in the way that one might think. But in reality, God answered it above and beyond what any Jew in Jeremiah's day could have even imagined. As far as we know, God still isn't done. I'd like us to close this morning with one more passage if you would turn to uh, the book of Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I'm sorry, we're going a little long this morning. Romans chapter 11, and notice in verse 11, Paul is looking back at that long and often sordid history of Israel. And he says in verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Jump to verse 15. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And then jump down to verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. I'm going to leave us with that, and let us look to the Lord in prayer once again. Heavenly Father, thank you for the 
work that you have accomplished in the bringing in of the new covenant. Lord, we understand uh, how one covenant uh, was built upon the other, but yet it was necessary that the old covenant must die and be completely done away with so that the new one could flourish. And we look, Lord, at what happened to Israel as a part of your plan. We as the New Testament church are grateful uh, for these events that you have brought to pass uh, to accomplish your purposes. And we look forward to uh, whatever those purposes are to the end of the age. We know, dear Lord, that you are in full control, regardless of whatever horrible things remain uh, to be carried out in this world. We know that you are sovereignly in control of it all. We ask that you would help us to trust in you and have faith. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.